It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome back, everyone, to the story of the Salem Witch Hunt and Trials. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and Part 2 begins now. We left you at the end of Part 1 with a list of the accusers and the accused still growing, and the accusers still consist entirely of teenage girls. Some researchers have tried to say that it is possible that a fungus such as the type that grows on rye bread could have caused the same symptoms that taking LSD could cause, but when you think about it, Mold on bread is pretty easy to spot, and there have been scenes like the ones in both the church and the courthouse where numerous girls all broke into fits at once, pointing fingers of accusation. It looks very much like an orchestrated effort to go after people in the village that they just didn't like or that their families had a grudge against. Mary Warren, who was the servant girl to John Proctor, did recant her accusation of Giles Corey at a congregation meeting, where it seems the right questions were asked, and she accused the other girls of lying about the whole thing. That could have turned the tide on the whole affair, but the other girls, and whoever, if anyone, was driving them, doubled down and filed a formal complaint against her, accusing her of being a witch as well. And remember, all complaints were being submitted by Anne Putnam's father. Now John Proctor and his wife Elizabeth had been accused of being witches, Elizabeth being accused first by their servant Mary, and by Anne Putnam Jr. and Nabby Williams, who was allowed to question Elizabeth in that sham court, and while doing so, insinuated that Elizabeth had been using Mary to carry out some of her dirty witch work. Mary was told to testify, and to save her own neck she testified against the proctors, forgetting all about her earlier reversal of attitude. The court decided to let Mary off the hook for her help in naming other witches, and she was pardoned. As a reminder, the list of suspects had now grown beyond Tatuba's five, taking in Sarah Cloyce, who was Rebecca Nurse's sister, Giles Corey, John and Elizabeth Proctor, Abigail and Deliverance Hobbs, Bridget Bishop, and Mary Eastie, and soon a new reverend named George Burroughs. George Burroughs was a capable minister who had started his practice in Maine, where he married a young Hannah Fisher, but they were forced to flee Maine with their family when they narrowly survived a French-led Indian attack on their village, and somehow they landed penniless in Salem with their only belongings on their backs. It didn't take long living in Salem to see that it was going to be tough going. Burroughs wasn't given a parsonage. Instead, he had to live with the Putnam family. 
Hannah died in childbirth, and he was left with a baby and their eight other children. He soon married a wealthy widower named Sarah Ruck Haythorne. And if that Haythorne name sounds familiar, it is. He was the father of Judge Haythorne, who in this story presides over the witch trials. George Burroughs and Sarah and family were booted out of Salem, and they headed for their only home they'd known in Maine, where they were again accosted by warring Indians. During this time they took in an orphan of those raids whose name was Mercy Lewis. Mercy was little more than a slave to his huge family, and no doubt not without her full share of resentments. Mercy ran away from Burroughs and went to Salem with some other Indian War refugees, where she lived with the Putnams and became a good friend of Anne Putnam, Jr. At Wooden it, she developed the same symptoms as Anne. And when Burroughs returned, this time, to the town of Portsmouth, he was just in time for Mercy to accuse him of being the man in black whom Tatuba had named in her imaginative rant. Next thing you know, officers from Portsmouth were beating down his door. They arrested him and dragged him back kicking and screaming to Salem, where he was thrown in jail until Judge Haythorne could tear into him. And now Haythorne could avenge the deaths of his family members, Hannah Fisher and Sarah Ruck Haythorne. And Anne Putnam Jr. had prepared a long testimony that began by accusing Burroughs of killing both his wives. In fact, she had seen it in a vision. She said Burroughs had superhuman strength, and anyone could see he wasn't cut out to be a minister. Real ministers were scrawny types with pale faces who walked around with their noses in the Bible. Not this guy Burroughs. He was a demon. He could carry huge loads long distances, and he had a rugged look and face. He could even lift a heavy musket with just his finger crooked in the barrel. A team of judges, including the sneering Haythorn, listened to her testimony and smacked down anything Burroughs said to defend himself. He was jailed two days after. The jail was filling up, but the accusers and the judges were trying some new creative methods to get more victims. They let the word slip out that if you admitted to being a witch, you could avoid the death sentence. The catch was that you had to intimidate other witches to get off. So Mary Jacobs, who had been accused but not sentenced, admitted that she was a witch for sure, and abracadabra, she produced two names of men who had shown her the ropes. Her father, George Jacobs, and the minister, George Burroughs. The judges were high-fiving each other now, each believing that they'd cracked the ring of witches and now had the leaders identified. Simpletons though they must have been, you have to give them the credit for determination to follow through on their own bias without ever looking for the truth. At this point, with all that hard evidence gleaned from reported bad dreams and visions to work with, they had proof that real witches were operating in their midst. It was a vast conspiracy. If you spoke up against what the judges or village elites knew to be the absolute truth, you were accused of being a village hater. If you went along with it, life was good, and you might get a free ticket to some public hangings. Then the judges, knowing that Burroughs was the man in black, decided to run some tests on him. It was hard to shut him up because he kept proclaiming his innocence, but when they did, they inspected his entire body for marks or blemishes. The theory there was that if marks were found, they were going to be pricked with a pin to see if blood came out. If there was no blood, the marks were the marks of Satan. The examination took place, but the judges couldn't find any marks to prick. They threw him back in the jail to await his death sentence. All this took place in the merry month of March in Salem in 1692. Throughout April, Deliverance Hobbs and her daughter Abigail came forward and confessed, and named husband and father William Hobbs. Seems there might have been a grudge there. Now he was headed for a hangman's noose. But to keep it real, they named three others. They named three other families, Edward and Sarah Bishop, Mary English, and Nehemiah Abbott, Jr. 
There were so many people accused that the original ones had to languish in jail waiting for their sentence. Tituba, Sarah Good, and Sarah Osborne had been in jail nearly sixty days, and although Tituba, who was young and used to hardship, was holding up okay, the other two were sinking fast. Little four-year-old Dorothy Good, evil witch that she was, had been placed in a separate cell from her mother, Sarah Good, and Sarah Good was pregnant. Sarah Good bore a child within the confines of her cell and called it Mercy, of which there was little to none in Salem. Mercy died in her mother's arms in jail, and still no one would speak up. Sarah Osborne watched all this from her cell. She was wasting away, and she was sick. The cold dampness of the cell, the lack of medical help, and the rotten food had all combined to turn her into a skeleton. She took her last breath on May 10, 1692. You would think if she was a witch she could get them all out of there, or at least get some decent food. But she was a witch, said the teenage girls of Salem, and the judges, and the jury, for it was more than just one judge. In fact, there were about a dozen different magistrates. All agreed. The fact that Sarah Osborne was a witch was settled science. Massachusetts had a new governor, and his name was Phipps. He was a man among men, a treasure hunter, a ship's captain, and lately, a knight, having found the wreck of the treasure ship Concepcion and given the millions worth of coin to England, which in turn richly rewarded him and bestowed knighthood upon him. The year prior to the Salem witch trials, Phipps had forged strong ties with other notables in Massachusetts, including Reverend Increase Mather, the president of Harvard, and his son Cotton Mather. This friendship landed Phipps a governorship. He returned to Massachusetts from London right around the time Sarah Osborne died in jail and decided to get things moving in Salem, to flex some muscle and show some organization. To get the trials going more quickly, he appointed a court to hear and decide on which matters, and John Haythorne was moved to the top along with Lieutenant Governor William Stoughton, who was a devout Puritan who believed, like Haythorne, that the only good witch was a dead witch. And Phipps made a very important proclamation, that spectral evidence could be used to convict, which meant any story from anybody, even a witch, concerning a dream or a vision, or heck, even a random thought, could be used as incriminating evidence. Later, in an effort to clear his name and stellar reputation, Phipps, the ultimate governor in charge, would change course, but for now, the jail was getting too crowded and there were plenty of places to bury witch bodies. Both Cotton Mather and his father were knee-deep in the involvement of the sentencing and hanging of witches in New England. It was Cotton who had said goody to the gallows in Boston, which we spoke of in the beginning of this story. We'll return to our story right after these sponsor messages. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. And now, back to our story. 
With Phipps pushing for results, the judges pressed for a first victim to take to the gallows. They wanted to pick one for a starter that the whole weak-willed community would support, so they chose Bridget Bishop to be the first to hang. Even by today's standards, Bridget Bishop looked like a gerbet. She'd been married three times, leaving a trail of dead husbands in her wake, and she had a bunch of people testify against her. The girls imagined some really wicked things about her, and the judges were impressed with their stories. Bridget was known for throwing wild parties at her place that lasted through the night, and this wasn't her first rodeo. She'd already been accused of witchcraft, which they said she used to kill her husbands. Little homemade rag dolls called puppets were found in the walls of her cellar. But worst of all, she shouted at a judge that she didn't know what a witch was, instead of accusing three or four other women of the... But this judge believed he was brilliant. He confidently asked her, How can you know you are no witch, yet not know what a witch is? Ah, Bridget had no answer for that hot one. It was really too stupid a question for a comeback. One of those things that make you just shake your head and wonder how the person asking it got past fifth grade. Bang! The gavel came down, the judge pronounced sentence, and an hour later Bridget was being pushed and shoved on the back of a rolling cart and having a rope fastened around her neck. It was June 10th, 1692. The people lining the route were all eager to see a hanging. They were all dressed in very plain colors, like good Puritans. Bridget had on her red bodice. It's not recorded what she said, but I'd like to think she didn't go quietly, and hopefully she called them all out for what they were. She stepped upon a platform and became the first innocent person in Salem to be hung for witchcraft. There was no sweeter lady in Salem Village than Mary Eastie. She was in her fifties, and she was Rebecca Nurse's sister. Mary's whole family, her mother and her two sisters, had been accused of witchcraft before in another town in which they lived but it had been proven there that their accusers were biased against the family and making it all up. But apparently that town still operated with a shred of reason. Salem was in full paranoia mode now. Mary stood in the area designated for the accused, wringing her hands and pleading for mercy, while a select number of teenage girls pointed fingers, screamed, contorted their bodies, frauds at the mouth, and accused her of being the witch that was making them all do that. How can you not believe a testimony like that? Mercy Lewis was one of the best actors, and when she saw Mary wringing her hands in desperation, Mercy clasped her hands in the same gesture. Then she began to scream and stagger around the room, yelling in a panic that she couldn't unlock her hands. Apparently they were being held powerless by Mary Eastie's satanic, invisible hand. Mary watched the ridiculous show and stood her ground with courage. One magistrate asked her, "'Well, what about this? Are you guilty?' She raised her head and said, I can say before Jesus Christ I am free. Now the magistrate bore down, wanting a little attention for himself and showing his authority. Have you complied with Satan? he said. I never complied with Satan, she said coolly, but prayed against him all my days. I have no compliance with Satan in this. What would you have me do? Confess that you're guilty, he said. Mary knew that a confession might keep her from the gallows, but she wasn't going to lie, and she wasn't going to pin it on innocent people. I will say it if it's my last time. I am clear of this sin. Of what sin? asked the judge. Of witchcraft, she answered. He started at her. The teenage accusers had been silent, watching Mary. He asked them, like Pontius Pilate questioning the Jews, Are you sure this is the woman? The girls then threw themselves on the floor, contorting their bodies, screaming, 
gnawing, barking, and pointing at Mary. There was some doubt there. She was released May 18th, and for two whole days she was allowed to look at the sky and walk freely. Then Mercy Lewis put on the show of her young life, and Mary was arrested again. The judges, in their great wisdom, acted supremely, along with the jury's help, and sentenced her to death on June 8th. To be fair, there was a new magistrate present throughout Bridget Bishop's trial, and his name was Nathaniel Saltonstall. He was a town clerk who was respected for being firm yet kind in all his dealings. Probably the wrong choice for this bunch of self-aggrandizing bigots. As he watched her trial, it struck him that this whole thing was a farce. He handed in his resignation. No, he didn't do anything to stop all this, but he was the one judge who had enough of a conscience left not to be a part of it. And yes, at one point, 39 people signed a petition asking that Rebecca Nurse's life be spared. There were even a few Putnams on the list. Not the bad actors, but Putnams nonetheless. The petition almost worked, but when a jury foreman announced a not guilty verdict to the courtroom, a wail of panic arose from the teen girl accusers, and a fine display of insanity took place until William Stoughton, the chief justice, asked the foreman and jury to reconsider. A new verdict was returned, guilty. 71-year-old Rebecca found herself walking up Gallows Hill with three other women, Susanna Martin, Elizabeth Howe, and Sarah Wilds, while the villagers watched. To provide an example of how morally bankrupt the judges and jury were, all one needs to do is look at Sarah Good's trial. She had lost everything, her daughter, her baby, her sanity, and she had no one standing up for her. One of her accusers had screamed that Sarah, or the specter of Sarah, was stabbing her with a knife. The accuser then produced half of a knife, which had been broken, and held it up for the judges to see. The judges and jury gasped at the incredible evidence. Suddenly a young man in the courtroom came forward with the other half of the broken knife, saying he had seen Good's accuser pull it out of the trash pile where he had just thrown it. But the court would not reconsider the evidence. The accuser was given a slap on the figurative wrist, and Sarah was condemned to death. It was July 19, 1692, when Sarah Good stood on the gallows platform, still proclaiming her innocence. A minister in the crowd named Nicholas Noyes tried to make her confess, and she screamed back at him. "'You are a liar,' she said. "'I am no more a witch than you are a wizard, and if you take away my life, God will give you blood to drink.'" Years later, Nicholas Noyes suffered a deadly internal hemorrhage and drowned in his own blood. Meanwhile, George Burroughs had been rotting in jail for three months when he was finally escorted to Gallows Hill. The villagers all stood and watched as he spoke the Lord's Prayer in a clear voice above their heads. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. The crowd had come to watch a demon hang. After all, he was the man in black. He had led all the other witches. He was the demon ringleader. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespassed against us. Now there were tears rolling down the faces of grown men in the audience who were watching. Were they crying in shame for their own silence, or at the horrific scene that was playing itself out in front of them? History doesn't tell us. Burroughs preached a sermon there before they hung him. He had been carried to Proctor's Ledge in a cart with four other deplorables, George Jacob Sr., Martha Carrier, John Proctor, and John Willard. Burroughs had been paraded through the village streets while people jeered and tried to strike him with mud and stones. 
Cotton Mather, sitting astride his horse, was watching as George Burroughs stepped onto the platform with the others. The accusers were crying out that they saw Satan standing next to Burroughs, that Satan was dictating the Lord's Prayer to him, because, you know, it's settled science. No witch can recite the Lord's Prayer. The crowd was beginning to cry out to stop the hangings, but the accusers kept shrieking, and the trap doors were released. Burroughs was hanging, his legs kicking, then it stopped, and he was still. Cotton Mather could see the crowd was restless. He tried to reassure them that Burroughs definitely was a witch. He was not an ordained minister, said Cotton Mathers. The devil could take any shame or form, including that of a minister. Apparently that relieved the crowd of their guilt. The respectable citizens of Salem rushed to cut down Burroughs' body, and then dragged him across the ground, along with two other victims, and buried all three in a shallow grave. The grave was so shallow, when they left, that one chin and one hand were still visible when they walked away. In mid-September, Giles Corey was pronounced guilty of witchcraft and sentenced to die. His accusers, Ann Putnam Jr., Nabby Williams, and Mercy Lewis, who all testified that his specter had been visiting and attacking them. Despite the fact that he was 81 years old, he was sentenced to die by pien forte de dure, or simply being crushed by large stones. Now Giles was lying naked, face up, on a bare floor in a room with a wide wooden plank laid across his body. A number of large rocks had been applied to the plank. Still, after 24 hours, he could still speak, although barely. Sheriff George Corwin was piling on the rocks and screaming at Giles to confess. But Giles wasn't going to confess. He knew that if he confessed, his property, which was of considerable size and wealth, would not go to his son's so he could be heard beneath the pile of stones saying, More weight. Sheriff Corwin wanted those lands. He leaped up on the rocks, adding his own weight to the pile, looking down at Giles's face, with his tongue hanging out, and said, Confess, damn you! Then he jammed his cane tip into Giles's mouth to push his tongue back in. Confess! But Giles Corey was a tough man. His ribs shattered, his lungs nearly done. After two full days of torture, he finally moaned out his last words. More weight. Three days after Giles' death, they hung his wife, Martha. As with all the others, Judge Stoughton convicted her purely upon spectral evidence from testimony that the accusers had dreamed up. Martha didn't go down without a fight. She angrily pleaded not guilty, said the girls were lying, which she said to their faces, and denied any belief in the existence of witchcraft. The jury found her guilty and sentenced her to hang on September 22nd. She walked up the hill with seven others, and Mary Eastie was in the same group. They were all guilty of some minor offense, either one that the Putnams didn't like or something else that was cooked up, in addition to their witchcraft. All this had been going on now for seven months. Their deaths brought the toll up to 19 hanged, two dead in prison, and one killed by stones. The mass hanging of eight people on September 22, 1692, marked the high water point of the insanity that had affected the minds of the villagers of Salem. It also marked the point at which a very few began to come to their senses. There were three women who were sentenced to be hung, but not hung that day. One was Dorcas Hoar, an old widow from the nearby village of Beverly, who, during her years of living there, had become known to the people of nearby Salem Village. The first complaints against her were filed by Thomas Putnam and Jonathan Wolcott, who were probably after some property she owned or could benefit by her death in some way. She was arrested April 30th 
but could only stand trial on September 6th, so spent four months starving in jail, in Salem, and no doubt sharing evil potion recipes with other prisoners, all of whom couldn't make rats disappear or conjure up any mercy at all. A dozen witnesses testified against her at the trial, including the Reverend John Hale, and together they hashed up years of incriminating actions known to Dorcas. For she liked to talk of fortune-telling, and people suspected her of killing animals by witchcraft. Reverend Hale testified that Dorcas had stolen out of his house, and that when his daughter Rebecca caught her in the act, Dorcas cursed her. That was fourteen years ago, but it didn't matter. But when Hale heard another testimony about how Dorcas had confessed her life to a local, he turned and wrote a petition to those present to spare her life. He must have had a change of heart. The petition was sent to Governor Phipps, who postponed her execution. Elizabeth Proctor and Abigail Faulkner were also given stays of execution because they were pregnant. People now were beginning to see what had been taking place among them, albeit very slowly. There were still 50 cases waiting to be heard by October, and 50 people in jail awaiting trial. Governor Phipps wanted to get them out of jail and close their cases, so he established a superior court, in other words, a court led by the smartest of the smart. So he appointed the elite Judge Stoughton to the post. Stoughton's hands were now very bloody indeed, having been there for the last 19 deaths. But he was a Harvard guy, which back then was a pedigree for leadership. He had graduated from Harvard at age 19 with a theology degree, and worked for many years until the new Massachusetts Charter was created and Phipps handed him the job of Chief Justice of Massachusetts. No matter that he had zero law experience and a strong Puritan bias, and he'd earned the reputation of pronouncing accused people guilty before they ever entered the courtroom. But Governor Phipps had read some Elder Mather's. But Governor Phipps had read some of the Elder Mather's rantings on trials for witches being held without the use of spectral evidence, and it seems as though a small spark of reason had erupted in the back of his brain. Thus, the first trial of Salem, without using spectral evidence, took place on January fourth, sixteen ninety-three, limiting hanging Judge Houghton to trials without evidence being pulled from dreams and visions. Sarah Buckley and her daughter Mary Withridge were the accused. Sarah had eight children with her husband William. They had owned land and had had a good life, until the former governor of Massachusetts sued William and lost his land, all his cobbler's tools which he had used to make his living to provide for his family, and his money, which was taken from him. He and Sarah were thrown in jail to await trial for seven months. Sarah had two things going for her in this trial. One, the fact that spectral evidence could not be used and two, a kind letter from the minister of the neighboring village of Ipswich, testifying to her goodness. Stoughton wanted to hang them both, but without the antics of the Putnam acting troop, he was completely stymied. He had absolutely nothing to hang them with. The two women were declared not guilty by the jury and set free. Sarah walked out of jail destitute, her husband dead, and her children gone. She disappears into history at that point. Her daughter Mary married the son of John Proctor, who had also been spared from the rope. Elizabeth Proctor, his mother, was finally let go in 1693. By January 10th, the names of 11 more people had been cleared. Hope began to glimmer for those still waiting in jail. Houghton did his best to sentence more women to death, but at last Governor Phipps had had enough, and he started writing pardons. The last casualty was Lydia Dustin, who had some money and property, but thanks to the efforts of Sheriff Corwin, the fortune her husband had left her was taken by him in 1691, leaving her penniless and an outsider, the perfect victim for the Putnam witchmakers. 
She died March 10, 1693, nearly five months after the last hanging in Salem, innocent of any crime, and very alone and forgotten in a Boston jail, the last victim of the Salem witch trials. Naturally, one would hope that the wrongdoers would be punished in all this tragedy, but none were punished in any way other than having occasional fits of conscience. For the sake of history, here's what we know of the wrongdoers and the survivors. Sheriff Corwin was the man in charge of handling confiscated wealth in Salem Village, and he was doing very, very well. He had failed at getting Giles Corey's land, but succeeded at much more, especially the estate of Philip and Mary English. They had managed to escape with their lives to New York, but while they were gone, Corwin was pillaging their property, and when they returned home, they did so to find everything they owned gone. When Philip returned, in the wake of the trials, he suspected Corwin. It was now 1696. Mary had died in childbirth shortly after their return to Massachusetts, and Philip had nothing left but a few dollars and a whole lot of hate. Corwin died in April of 1696, after living a life of abundance for the past few years, and after his death, that wealth, a good deal of it gained from stealing Philip English's possessions, was given to his heirs. Now Corwin's coffin was being carried from the place of the funeral service to the burial site. His coffin carriers had had a little too much to drink, and were weaving and stopping along the way for refreshments. Suddenly, from out of the trees, a group of armed men appeared, and demanded that the coffin bearers drop the coffin and leave. They did. The coffin was loaded onto a cart which Philip English himself rode next to, on his way to a safe spot. Then English contacted Corwin's next of kin, telling them that if they wanted the body, they needed to pay him what Corwin had stolen, which amounted to 500 pounds sterling, about $100,000 in today's money. They did, and English returned what was left of Corwin's body to his family. The teenage girls who had become famous overnight for their antics in the courtroom and church were left out of the picture when the magistrate stopped using spectral evidence. Nine-year-old Elizabeth Betty Paris, who was the first of the girls to actually point out a suspect, lived a full and free life afterward, marrying Benjamin Barron, a shoemaker, in 1710, and raising four children. Her father, the Reverend Samuel Paris, continued to care for her and the children after her marriage. She never recanted her testimonies, which led Tituba and others to begin accusing others of witchcraft, and she had led other accused to the gallows. She died at 78. In Arthur Miller's book, The Crucible, which is based upon the Salem witch trials, she falls into a strange illness which begins all the fits. Betty's father Samuel was allowed to maintain his position for four years after the trials ended. Despite the fact that his sermons helped to fuel the rising tide of hysteria, no legal action was ever taken against him. And when you think about it, that was to be expected. Everyone involved in the legal proceedings was guilty so they were circling the wagons around each other. When the fix is in, justice takes a rest. I think we've seen a lot of that here today in America lately. It was no different in 1693. There was a group of people in the church that voiced their disgust with his participation in the frenzy, and they dropped out of church in dissent. It should have been the other way around. He left four years after due to the continuing dispute over the parsonage and preached in Sudbury for the remainder of his life. Abigail Nabby Williams, Betty Paris's cousin, who was there with her trying out the shapes in the Venus glass and was among the first two girls to begin having fits and pointing out witches, disappears from history after June 3, 1692. Elizabeth Hubbard also disappears from history. Anne Putnam Jr., the most damaging accuser of them all, 
actually publicly apologized for her actions. Yes, I was surprised to hear this, too. She was 12 years old then and strongly influenced with her family's rivalry with the Proctors and other families in the area. In 1706, at the age of 26, orphaned and capable of making her own choices without her mother to instruct her, which is likely what happened during the Salem witch frenzy, Anne realized that the whole thing had been either an hallucination or horrible falsehood spurred on by her mother's motives, as she put it. Her apology was read in church with her present, and she expressed regret at her actions, blaming them on a great delusion of Satan, as she stated it, and saying that none of these actions were a result of malice. Both of her parents died when she was nineteen, and she remained single for the rest of her life, devoted to raising her nine younger siblings, one of whom was just an infant when they were orphaned. A little background on Anne's parents. Thomas Putnam was from the third generation of Putnams in Salem Village. He was the eldest son of Thomas Putnam Sr., who himself was the eldest son of John Putnam, one of the founders of Salem Village who had arrived from England in the 1640s. The Putnams were a powerful and wealthy family, yet by the 1690s, Thomas Putnam was seeing his prospects diminish as property continued to be divided with each generation. He watched his neighbors like the porters and the nurses, who lived closer to Salem town, become more prosperous. Thomas Putnam had also aligned himself with the new village minister in 1689, Samuel Paris, a man who did not have everyone's support. Because Thomas Putnam resented his neighbor's successes, both economically and politically, something drove him, along with his wife and 12-year-old daughter, to accuse neighbors and strangers with practicing witchcraft. Anne Sr. was at the center of the witchcraft delusion, along with her husband. Like many women in the 17th century, Anne Sr. had suffered trauma in her life losing some of her siblings at an early age, losing children of her own, and watching as her sisters lost infants. It was Anne Sr. who often encouraged her young daughter Anne to name names. In 1699, an unknown illness killed Anne Sr. and Thomas Putnam, and Anne Putnam Jr. was left to raise all her siblings. Anne Jr.'s testimony went like this, and particularly as I was the chief instrument of accusing good wife nurse and her two sisters, I desired to lie in the dust and to be humbled for it, in that I was a cause, with others, of so sad a calamity, and earnestly begged forgiveness of God, and from all those unto whom I have given just cause of sorrow and offense, whose relations were taken away, or accused. Some of the judges later showed remorse, some didn't. Samuel Sewell, who hasn't yet been mentioned in this story, apologized after the trials. John Haythorne never showed any remorse or guilt. He stayed in Salem and worked as a judge for many more years, dying in 1717. His great-great-grandson would grow up to become the famous novelist Nathaniel Hawthorne, who changed the spelling and pronunciation of his last name to escape the shadow of Haythorne and his involvement with Salem. William Stoughton, who had been in charge of most of the trials, moved right on up the ranks, working as acting governor of Massachusetts after Phipps died, and he got a town named after him, Stoughton, Massachusetts. He was one of the guiltiest, but the guys at the top rarely see any punishment. Of the victims and their families, even those who were released in return came back to ruined lives. Elizabeth Proctor was one of these. She had been accused and was sentenced to hang until she received a reprieve due to her being pregnant. Her husband John had been hung. She bore a son, who she named after his dad, John, in jail, and she was finally released after a petition for her release reached the right people. Her stepson Benjamin, who was the one who had petitioned for her release, and his wife ended up taking Elizabeth under their wing with her son. By the way, her maiden name was Bassett, and since I'm a descendant of William Bassett, 
who arrived on the fortune of to Plymouth in 1620. I'm pretty sure Elizabeth Bassett is a relation. Sometimes I wonder who's tapping me on the shoulder to do some of these stories. Deliverance Hobbs, who had confessed to being a witch and implicated her own husband, William, along with Sarah Osborne and George Burroughs, was allowed to go free thanks to her confession. Her husband never stopped pressing his innocence and actually escaped from jail in April of 1692, abandoning his wife, who had ratted him out to save her own skin, and his daughter Abigail, who had also spoken out against him. In 1697, a day of fasting was declared in Massachusetts for the victims of the Salem trials, and it was on that day that Magistrate Samuel Sewall published his apology alongside the jury foreman and eleven of his jurors. It read, We do humbly beg forgiveness. We would none of us do such things again for the whole world. Also in that year, Reverend John Hale, the man who had petitioned for Dorcas Hale's stay of execution, published a book denouncing the trials and the behavior of the witnesses, the jurors, the magistrates, and the accusers, including himself. He wanted to get all the names and deeds in print so the event and actions would never be forgotten. Robert Califf, who you might remember was there when Goody Glover was hung, also published an account titled More Wonders of the Invisible World, which provided a foil to Cotton Mather's like-named publication, which had helped to fuel the trials. In the beginning of the 18th century, when the families of the victims could just begin to see that the state of Massachusetts, at least in some corners, was beginning to realize its culpabilities in the Salem killings, they began petitioning the government for damages and trying to clear the names of those who had been falsely accused, which obviously was all of them. When the Reverend Paris finally left, the Reverend Joe Green became Reverend of the Church in Salem, which had been torn apart by conflict. Its congregation of Puritans thoroughly disappointed with the lack of leadership and conflict of belief. Forgiveness was what he preached, but it must have been a bitter pill they had to swallow when he asked former enemies to change seats so they could sit side by side. It was Joe Green who reversed the excommunications of Rebecca Nurse and Martha and Giles Corey to ease their family's burdens. They had been taught that to have a family member discommunicated meant that they would burn in hell as well, and it was bad enough losing them without having to believe they were going to hell. And for what? They were innocent. And that brings up the role of religion in this. Churches should be a place where families can come together to worship God together, period. When churches try to dominate your life, imposing guilt, and turning one person or group against another, it's time to leave. There's enough drama in life without having it in church. America, and I'm sure other countries as well, has learned and grown from past experience. Superstitions have faded. The role of churches to help the needy and extend a loving and helpful hand to victims of natural disasters and personal loss can never be overstated. And the role of churches in sharing the word of the Bible in order to inspire and guide is important as well. In 2001, the last Salem victims were cleared of any wrongdoing by the signing of a resolution by Massachusetts Governor Jane Swift. Various memorials to the Salem victims have also been built throughout Salem, which was previously named Salem Town, and Danvers, which was then Salem Village. Salem Park was opened in 1992, and on the 300th anniversary of the trials, the names of the victims were etched into a wall there. A memorial to Rebecca Nurse was erected in 1885, alongside another memorial to her neighbors and friends who tried to save her. The story of the Salem Witch Trials is a lesson in humanity. It teaches us how easy it is to go along with the crowd. It teaches us what happens when the system of justice we put in place deserts us and becomes tainted. It teaches us that it's possible to have leaders who are corrupted by bias, by hate, by greed, 
or by a thirst for power. It teaches us the power that parents have to corrupt their children. It teaches us just how many people will sell out their fellow human beings to save their own skins. It teaches us how few people are brave enough to step forward and speak out against the current of public opinion when emotions are running high. What would it have taken to stop the Salem witch trials in their track? That's a topic for another day. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. If you enjoyed our story, please share it with others and please send us a review. A big welcome to many of our new listeners at Spotify, which has really been coming of age lately and giving Apple Podcasts a run for their money. Be sure to join us next week Sunday night for a brand new episode at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And don't miss subscribing to our other 1001 podcasts, like 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, 1001 Stories for the Road, 1001 Greatest Love Stories, 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre, 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories, and 1001 Radio Days. We'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.